Uh, Gary Steingart is the author of the Russian Debutantes Handbook, winner of the Stephen Crane Award for First Fiction and the National Jewish Book Award for Fiction. He's also the author of Absurdistan, which was named one of the ten best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, as well as being honored as one of the best books of the year by Time, the Washington Post Book World, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Chicago Tribune. Granta has named him one of the best young American novelists, and just recently the New Yorker picked him as one of the best 20 under 40 writers in America. His work has also appeared in GQ, The New Yorker, Esquire, Travel and Leisure, among others. Uh, a person might be forgiven if they read the title, Super Sad True Love Story, and thought it might be hyperbolic and just a little ironic. I'm here to tell you it's neither of those things. It's a love story to be sure. While Lenny and Eunice are an unlikely couple, the progression of their relationship is natural, and it's easy to see how they complement each other's lives. It's true because the fictional characters tell us that it is. If I were so bold, though, to, to amend the title, I might have called it Super True, our super sad, super scary true love story, because it's set in the near future where nobody reads anymore and books are looked upon as distasteful and odoriferous. I don't want to give away too much because I look forward to hearing Gary set up the story for us, but the world where he places his love story, this dystopic near future, is all the scarier because it is so believable. It's a very funny novel and great fun to read. It's a moving love story, but the book is also a very effective satire. Like other great satirists, he makes us look at ourselves and where our futures might be headed if we don't pay attention and value what's important. Thanks for coming, and help me welcome Gary Steingart. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Can anyone, everyone hear me in the back still? Yeah, okay. It's great to be back in D.C. It's been a, it's been a week. I, I really, I've missed everybody. <laughs> what's new? Uh, is this tax extension thing happening or not? Uh, that's all we talk about in New York. Uh, my shrink and accountant were like, you're going down there? Can you figure this out uh, for our long-range planning? Uh, anywho, great to be here. Uh, ooh, this is the fancy water. This is nice. So I'll be reading from Super Sad True Love Story, which has a del delightful cover. It's a twister game for dachshunds or... Not sure. Uh, it tested well with younger people when we, uh, <laughs> they're like, whoa, okay. Totally buying this if I had $26, uh, um, which I don't. Uh, just a couple of small, ex uh, this is one of these quasi-sci-fi things that you have to explain things before you actually read. Um, it's set slightly in the future when a completely illiterate America is about to fall apart. So next Tuesday, maybe? <laughs> Uh, there's only one party left, which is nice, right? Who needs two? Or, or, uh, it's called the Bipartisan Party. And uh, it's under the leadership of Defense Secretary Rubinstein, my first Jewish strongman. Before I write any book, my father says, you know, is this going to be good for the Jews? And I'm like, it's not going to be good for anybody. <laughs> there's a device called the Apparat, which is worn uh, like a pendant, and it just ranks everyone's wealth and attractiveness and things like that, so... Let's say I walk into a bar, it automatically says, everyone ranks me, and they say, you know, oh, you have the fourth best credit rating, but you're the seventh ugliest guy in this bar, or something like that. And there's two main characters, as was said. Uh, there's a Russian-American, Lenny Abramov. He's the narrator of the section I'm going to read. And he's approaching his 40s, which is a big no-no in this future, uh, being uh, f almost 40. Uh, and he works for a company called Post Human Services, 
which is trying to find the cure for death. Uh, good luck. And he has a younger Korean-American girlfriend named Eunice Park. And Lenny likes books, and Eunice likes uh, online shopping. So. <laughs> and this day, they're going back to see, her, uh, to see Lenny's parents. The next day, Eunice and I took the Long Island Railroad to Westbury, Long Island, to meet my parents, the Abramovs. The love I felt for Eunice on that train ride had a capital and provinces, parishes and a Vatican, an orange planet, and many sullen moons. It was systemic, and it was complete. Eunice was nervous almost to the point of quaking. Her outfit was conservative for the occasion, a sky-blue blouse with a Peter Pan collar and white buttons, pleated wool skirt reaching down below the knees, a black ribbon tied around the neck. From certain angles, she looked like one of the orthodox Jewish women who have overrun my co-op building. There she was, sweating so handsomely on her orange pleather L-I-R-R seat. Her elder worship and elder fear brought out a strange immigrant pride in me. There was something else, too. It was on the Long Island Railroad some 20 years ago that I had had my first crush on a Korean girl. I had been a freshman at a prestigious math and science high school in Tribeca. Most of the other kids were Asian, and although technically you had to live within New York City to go to the school, there were more than a few of us who faked our residency and commuted from various parcels of Long Island. For me, the long ride to Westbury amidst dozens of fellow nerd students was a particularly difficult one because it was public knowledge at the science high school that my weighted average was a dismal 86.894, while at least 91.553 had been recommended for entry into Cornell or the University of Pennsylvania, the weakest of the Ivy League schools. As immigrant children from high-performing nations, we knew our parents would slap us across the mouth for anything less than Cornell. Several of the Korean and Chinese boys who took the railroad with me, their spiky hair still haunts my most literal dreams, would dance around me, singing my average, 86.894, 86.894. You won't even get into Oberlin with that, they said. <laughs> Have fun at NYU, Abramov. Yeah, see you at the University of Chicago. It's the teacher of teachers. <laughs> Always gets a special laugh from Chicago alums. But there was one girl, another Eunice, a Eunice Choi to be exact, a tall, quiet beauty, who would pry the boys away from me while shouting, it's not Lenny's fault, he can't do well in school. Remember what Reverend Sung says, we're all different. We all have different abilities. Remember the fall of man? We're all fallen creatures. And then she'd sit down with me and unbidden, help me with my impossible chemistry homework, moving the strange letters and numbers around my notebook until the equations were for some reason deemed balanced while I utterly unbalanced by the magical girl next to me, her skin glowing beneath her summer gym shorts and orange Princeton jersey, tried to catch a brief smell of her hair or a brush of her hard elbow. It was the first time a woman had risen up to defend me, had given me the idea that I actually should be defended, that I actually wasn't a bad person, just not as skilled at life as some others. At Westbury, Eunice and I disembarked before an armored personnel carrier sitting by the squat station house, its 50 caliber Browning gun bouncing up and down. National Guardsmen were surveying the diverse crowd, Salvadorans and Irish and South Asians and Jews, and whoever else had chosen to make this corner of central Long Island the rich, smelly tapestry it had now become. The troops appeared angrier and more sunburned than usual. Perhaps they had just been rotated out of Venezuela. We're, we're fighting in Venezuela at this point, and it's, it's not going well. Beside the armored personnel carrier, a sign read, it is forbidden to acknowledge the existence of this armored personnel carrier, the object. By reading the sign, you have denied existence of the object and implied consent. 
We took a cab to the corner of Washington Avenue in Myron, the most important corner of my life. I could already see my parents' brownish half-brick, half-stucco cape, the golden mailbox out in front, the faux 19th century lamp beside it, the cheap lawn chairs stacked on the island of cement that was supposed to be the front porch, and the gigantic flags of the United States and Israel billowing from two flagpoles. I felt a little embarrassed because I knew that Eunice's parents were much better off than mine. At the door, my mother appeared in her usual household outfit, white bra and panties. <laughs> she was about to throw her arm around my neck when she noticed Eunice let out some Russian garble of amazement and retreated inside the house, leaving me, per the usual, with the visual of her thick breasts and white little round of belly. My father, shirtless, soon took her place, also gasped at Eunice, ran his hand against his naked muscular breast, said, whoa, then hugged me. There was hair against my new dress shirt, uh, the gray carpet of hair that my father wore with an odd touch of class, as if he were a royal in some tropical country. He kissed me on both cheeks, and I did the same, feeling the instructions, the code of Russian father-son relations. Father means I have to love him, have to listen to him, can't offend him, can't hurt him, can't bring him to task for past wrongs. He's an old man now, defenseless. My mother reappeared in shorts and a wife beater. Sunochik, little son, she shouted, look who's come to us, Nash Lubimitz, our favorite. She shook Eunice's hand, and both of my parents swiftly evaluated her, affirmed that she was like her predecessors, not Jewish, but quietly approved of the fact that she was thin and attractive, with a healthy black mane of hair. My mother unwrapped her own precious blonde locks from the green handkerchief that kept them safe from the American sun and smiled prettily at Eunice. She began talking in her brave post-retirement English about how glad she was to have a potential daughter-in-law, filling in the contours of her loneliness with rapid-fire questions about my mysterious life in faraway New York. Does Lenny keep clean house? Does he vacuum? Once I come to college dormitorium, oh, awful, such smell, dead ficus tree, old cheese on table, socks hanging in window. <laughs> Eunice smiled and spoke in my favor. He's very good, Mrs. Abramov, she said. He's very, very clean. <laughs> I looked at her with love. Somewhere beneath the bright suburban skies, I felt the presence of a 50th caliber Browning gun swiveling toward an incoming Long Island railroad train. But here I stood, surrounded by the people who loved me. I brought Tagamet from the discount pharmacy, I said to my father, taking five boxes out of the bag I brought. Thank you, Malinki, little one, my father said, taking hold of his beloved drug. It's peptic ulcer, he said to Eunice, pointing at the depth of his tortured stomach. My mother already grabbed hold of the back of my head and was madly stroking my hair. So gray, she said, so old he gets, almost 40. Lonya, what is happening to you? Too much stress, also losing hair, oh my God. You are named Eunice, my father said. Do you know where it comes from, such name? My parents, Eunice gamely began. No, 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 no. It's from the Greek, Eunike, meaning victorious. He laughed, happy to demonstrate that before he was forced to be a janitor in America, he had served as a quasi-intellectual and minor dandy on Moscow's Arbat Street. So I hope, he said, that in life you will be victorious also. Who cares about Greek, Boris, my mother said. Look at how she is beautiful. The fact that my parents admired Eunice's looks and capacity for victory brightened me quite a bit. All these years, and I still craved their approval, still longed for the carrot and stick of their 19th century child-rearing. 
I instructed myself to lower the heat of my emotions, to think without the family blood bursting at my temples. But I was 12 years old as soon as I passed the mezuzah at the front door. My father began to lead me to the living room couch for our usual heart-to-heart. My mother rushed over to the couch with a garbage bag, which she draped over the place where I was about to sit in my compromised Manhattan outerwear. She took Eunice to the kitchen, chatting gaily to her potential daughter-in-law about how guys can be so dirty, you know, and how she had just built a new storage device for her many, many mops. (laughs) On the couch, my father draped his arm around my shoulder and said, So tell me. I breathed in the same breath as he did, as if we were connected. I felt his age seep into mine as if he were the forward guard of my own mortality. I spoke in English with the tantalizing hints of Russian. I had studied haphazardly at NYU, the foreign words like raisins shining out of a loaf. I spoke about work, about my assets, about the most recent fairly positive valuation of my 740-square-foot Manhattan apartment, about all the monetary things that kept us fearful and connected. He held up the new apparat pendant I wore around my neck. How much, he said, turning the thing over, colorful data and rankings pouring over his hairy fingers. When I explained that the device was given to me at work, he made a happy snort and said in English, Ah, learn new technology for free. It's good. (laughs) The floor beneath my feet was clean, immigrant clean, clean enough so that you understood that somebody had done their best. My father had two old-fashioned television screens stapled to the walls above my mother's fanatically waxed mantelpiece. There there are only two uh, channels left in America, uh, Fox Liberty Prime and Fox Liberty Ultra. (laughs) What more do you need, honestly? Uh, One station was set to a Fox Liberty Prime stream, which was showing the growing tent city in Central Park, now spreading from the backyard of the Metropolitan Museum over Hill and Dale, all the way to the Sheep's Meadow. On the other screen, Fox Liberty Ultra was viciously broadcasting the arrival of the Chinese central banker at Andrews Air Force Base, our president and his pretty wife trying not to shiver in the bleak Maryland downpour. When I asked my father how he was feeling, he pointed at his heartburn and then began to talk about the news on The Fox. Speaking sometimes in English and sometimes in the complicated Russian sentences that English had denied him, he praised Defense Secretary Rubinstein, talked about all that he and the bipartisan party had done for our country, and how with Rubinstein's blessings, Israel could now use the nuclear option against the Arabs and the Persians. In particular, he said, against Damascus, which, if winds are properly positioned, with the help of God, will carry poison clouds and fallouts in direction of Tehran and Baghdad, and not Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv. I felt my father's breath against my cheek for 20 minutes as he talked about his complex political life, then excused myself, unwound from his humid embrace, and went to the upstairs bathroom as my mother shouted to me from the kitchen, Lenny, don't take shoes off in upstairs bathroom. Papa has gribok, athlete's foot. In the contaminated bathroom, I admired the strange blob of plastic with wooden spokes that kept my mother's serious mop collection in ready-to-access mode. Although my parents never had a good word to say about the country now known as Holy Petrol Russia, the hallways were hung with framed sepia-toned postcards of Red Square and the Kremlin, the snow-dusted equestrian statue of Prince Yuri Dolgoruki, founder of Moscow, and the Gothic Stalin-era skyscraper of prestigious Moscow State University, which neither of my parents had attended because to hear them tell it, Jews were not allowed in back then. As for me, I have never been to Russia. I have not had the chance to learn to love it and hate it like my parents. I have my own dying empire to contend with, and I do not wish for any other. My bedroom was nearly empty. All the traces of my habitation, the posters and little bits of crap from my travels were gone. 
I reveled in the smallness, the coziness of an upstairs bedroom in a traditional American Cape Cod house, that half floor that forces you to duck to feel small and naive again. I cannot begin to tell you how much the purchase of this house, of each tiny bedroom, had meant to my family and to me. I still remember the signing at the real estate lawyer's office, the three of us mentally forgiving each other for a decade and a half worth of sins, the youthful beatings administered by my father, my mother's anxieties and manias, my own teenage sullenness, because the janitor and his wife had done something right at last, and it would all be okay now. There was no turning back from this, from this glorious fortune we had been granted in the middle of Long Island, from the carefully clipped bushes by the mailbox, our bushes, a brahm of bushes, to the often-mentioned Californian possibility of an above-ground swimming pool in the tiny yard. Down in the dining room with the shiny Romanian furnitures the Abramovs had imported from their Moscow apartment, the table was laid out in the hospitable Russian manner, with everything from four different kinds of salami to a plate of chewy tongue to every little fish that had ever inhabited the Baltic Sea, not to mention the sacred little dash of black caviar. Eunice sat, Queen Esther-like in her orthodox get-up, at the ceremonial end of the table, upon a fluffed-up Passover pillow, frowning at the attention, unsure of how to deal with the strange currents of love and its opposite that circulated in the fish-smelling air. My father proposed a seasonal toast in English. To the creator who created America, land of free, and who gives us Defense Secretary Rubinstein, who kill Arab. <laughs> and to love, which is blooming in such time between my son and Unique, who big wing to Eunice, will be victorious like Sparta over Athens. And to the summer, which is most conducive season to love, although some may say spring. <laughs> While he went on in his booming voice, a shot glass shaking in his troubled hand, my mother, bored out of her mind, leaned over to me and said, Кстати, у твоей Юнис очень красивые зубы. Может быть, ты женишься? By the way, your Eunice has very pretty teeth. Maybe you will marry her. I could see Eunice absorbing the basics of my father's speech. Arabs, bad. Jews, good. <laughs> Chinese central banker, possibly okay. America, always number one in his heart. Well, she gauged the intent on my mother's face as she spoke to me in Russian. Eunice's mind moved so quickly through feelings and ideas, but the fear in her face reflected a life rushing by faster than she could make sense of it. The toast finally complete, we dove into the food without reservation, all of us from countries historically strangled by starvation, none of us strangers to salt and brine. Yunus, my mother said, perhaps you can answer for me this question. Who is Lenny by profession? I never can figure out. He went to NYU business school, so he is like what, businessman? <laughs> Mom, I said, please, please, not now, not now. I am talking to Yunus, my mother said. You know, girls talk. I'd never seen Eunice's face so serious, even as the tail end of a Baltic sardine disappeared between her glossy lips. Lenny does, like, very important work, she told my mother. It's, I think it's like medicine. He helps people live forever. My father's fist slammed the dining table. Impossible, he cried. It breaks every law of physics and biology, for one. For two, it's immoral against God. I would not want such thing, too. <laughs> work is work, my mother said. If stupid rich American wants to live forever... And Lenny makes money. Why do you care? She waved her hand at my father. Stupid, she said. <laughs> yes, but how Lenny knows about medicine? My father lit up, brandishing a fork capped by a marinated mushroom. He never studied in high school. What is his weighted average? 86.894. <laughs> 
My mother waved him off again and turned to Eunice. So you met Lenny in Italy, she said. Lenny tells us you speak perfect Italian. Eunice blushed some more. No, she said, lowering her eyes and cupping her knees. I'm forgetting everything, the, the irregular verbs. Now Lenny spends one year in Italy, my father said. We come to visit him. He speaks nothing. Blah, 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 blah. He moved his body to imitate my walking through the Roman streets while trying to talk to the natives. You are a liar, Boris, my mother said casually. He bought us beautiful tomato in market. He'll bring down price, three euro. But tomato is so simple, my father said. In Russian, pomidor. In Italian, pomodoro. Even I know such thing. If he maybe negotiate for us cucumber or squash. <laughs> Shut up already, Boris, my mother said. She readjusted her summer blouse and bored her eyes into, uh, into mine. Lenny, she said. We see, you, we see you appear on Apparat Stream, 101 people we need to feel sorry for. Why do you do it? Your colleague, he makes fun of you. He says you are fat and stupid and old. You don't eat good food, and you do not have profession, and your fuckability rankings are very low. <laughs> and he says, you've been demoted at the company you work. Papa and I are very sad about this. My father looked away in some shame while I curled and uncurled my toes beneath the table. I had told him so many times not to look at any apparat streams or data about me. I was a private person with my own little world. Why couldn't they find a better use for their retirement years and this painful scrutiny of their only child? Why did they stalk me with their tomatoes and high school averages and who are you by profession logic? And then I heard Eunice speak, her straightforward American English ringing against the smallness of our house. I told him not to appear in it, too, she said. And he won't anymore. You won't, right, Lenny? You're so good and smart. Why do you need to do it? Exactly, my mother said. Exactly, Eunice. I did not say anything. I leaned back and watched the two women in my life look across a glossy Romanian table groaning beneath a plastic cover and 20 gallons of mayonnaise and canned fish. They were eyeing each other with a placid understanding. Sometimes mothers and girlfriends compete against one another, but that has never been my experience. It's quite easy for two smart women, no matter what the gap in their age and background, to come to a complete agreement about me. This child, they seem to be saying to each other, this child still needs to be brought up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so if there's any questions or complaints, uh, <laughs> please register at these microphones. Uh. Favorite question so far on this tour, what's wrong with you? I <laughs> guess <laughs> uh, start here and then. Sure. Um, I'm Georgia Book. Thank you. Um, and uh, I remember reading in the post that um, uh, the, uh, I think it was Ron Charles, he wanted me, anyone who downloaded your book on their iPod to get a virus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to ask you what, what you thought about um, technology and how uh, it has a positive effect on literature um, and sort of what the downfalls are. I, I assume you mean the Washington Post. The, the New York Post is mostly, it's not even a newspaper. It's mostly like an oral tradition at this point, you know. Uh, yeah, the Washington Post. Yo, Rancho, I remember that. Yeah, that was a great, uh, that was a very nice review. Um, Interesting, on this tour, people have been coming to me with uh, Kindles and iPods to sign, you know, on the back. <laughs> um, and I signed them. 
I'm of two minds about about a lot of this electronic. I, I, on the one hand, I'm glad that people are reading. Uh, if the experience is, is good for the, whoever it is, you know, let's say you're somebody who travels, to, and many people in Washington travel incessantly, uh, it's good to have, you know, instead of packing ten novels you, you, or, or books, you just, you just put it all on, on one machine. Something I think is lost, though, because these are beautiful, beautiful objects. Um, each book is different. Um, when you have one out, I remember as a young man trying to hit on young women on the subway in New York, you know, you, you always have J James Joyce's Ulysses out, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm smart. <laughs> uh, and absurd to say, my last book became what's called an accessory book uh, on the L train to Williamsburg, which means uh, <laughs> young men would just carry it as a sign of, like, a peacock saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm literate and, and never read it, you know, which was fine with me. <laughs> um, so, uh, there's a, and, and also, I love walking into a house and seeing a bookshelf. That's how you find out who a person is, to, to me. You know, well, the record collection doesn't, help, doesn't hurt either, but uh, the, the books. So, I, I'm very conflicted about that. I also think that when we read something, when something is downloaded, it's no longer a, an object, a, a book, of course. It's, it's a text file, essentially. Um, and what do we do all day? We deal with text, when, you know, any white-collar job that we're in, all we do is we're surrounded by constant little pings of information being thrown at our eyeballs. And a lot of it comes in the form of text, you know. And this kind of makes it a little bit sacred when it's actually this printed object with two covers, uh, as opposed to yet another thing that, that comes at us. So, on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I can't hold back the tide of history. I know that, obviously, already I think that statistically for this book, for my last book, almost nothing was, was in terms of was sold as, as a Kindle or whatever. Now I think it's about a quarter of all the sales. This book's only been out for a month and a half, but already about a quarter of the sales are electronic. So I understand that in the future the majority of books will be read this way. Um, but uh, I hope that there will be, you know, the way people love LPs and collect LPs, I hope there will always be room for bookstores, wonderful bookstores like this and, and for, the printed, for printed matter. Thank you. So my question is more about process. I'm kind of fascinated by the way that you write. Um, do you find that you write yourself? You, that you write in some lonely corner of your house with like you know the the, the curtains drawn and it's silent, or is it more like a music thing? Uh -huh. Is it in, in cafes like in a Starbucks? <laughs> and then question two is I find that a lot of novelists can't help but write themselves as as like that main character. And what you read, I don't know. Is that is is that kind of you? <laughs> Wait a minute. So you're saying that uh, this 38-year-old balding nebbish is me? Well, you're the same. <laughs> well, I'm a Russian American, Stuyvesant, yeah. 86.894 average. Uh, <laughs> I'm shocked by the insinuation. Uh, <laughs> and I've I never mean, dated a Korean like, woman. No. <laughs> Jesus. Dan um, Brown writes as if it's like him in, in in those books. So it seems even like you know guys like him right. you know, really can't. Help astray. It's tough. It's tough. My first book, uh, whatever, what was it? Russian Debutante's Handjob or whatever the hell it was called. Uh, <laughs> that was a very autobiographical novel because it was written, you know, I started at Oberlin and um, uh, when you're 22, what, what are you going to write about? You know, you only, all you know is yourself. Uh, my second book featured a 325-pound guy with a bad circumcision. That, that was not, well, <laughs> half true, let's say. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of problems there. Um, this book feels autobiographical and not, you know, at the same time, because I don't face a lot of the problems Lenny faces. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I've given up on immortality. I, I know it's not going to happen. Um, and, and my views toward death and love are, are very stable at this point, whereas Lenny's, Lenny's views reflect more maybe myself as a younger person. I love reading about 
books written by people when they were young, you know, like uh, Martin Amos, for example. And I love also writing books from younger person's point of view. I think it's an amazing, and I teach at Columbia, so I'm constantly surrounded by younger people. That's why I came up with some of the expressions in this book, like, you know, JBF, which means I'm just fucking you, and <laughs> Timatov, think I'm about to openly vomit. Uh, so I enjoy that kind of discourse. Um, not that any of my students would ever use stuff like that. Uh, OMG. Uh, oh, the writing process. So, uh, 11 o'clock, wake up call, I'm hungover. Uh, this guy, Carlos, brings me this amazing uh, cafe macchiato with uh, this green tea oatmeal cookie. That's supposed to be good for me, but I doubt it is. Uh, work is from 12 to 4. Uh, 4 p.m. Uh, psychoanalysis, uh, along with a whole bevy of, of, of my fellow New York writers who all have either my shrink or shrinks up and down Fifth Avenue, uh, caddy corner to the Guggenheim. Then we retreat to Cafe Sabarsky, an appropriately enough Viennese cafe for uh, Cafe Mitschlag and the, an amazing strudel. Then horrific bouts of drinking begin that last until 2 in the morning. Lots of insecurity. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? This Kindle's going to kill all of us. You know. Uh, stagger home, very sad. Sleep for 9 to 10 hours. Cycle repeats. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> it's that good. So, historically speaking, satire is, is, is a Tory genre of literature, and I'm wondering, it's a debatable assumption, but it's a possible assumption, could you say that your book is a kind of defense of literature and in a certain way of American power, or would you want to spin things in a more, in a more left-wing direction? <laughs> Thank you, Michael Kimmage, uh, Catholic University. Um, well, let's see. Is it a defense? In some ways, this book is kind of reactionary in the sense that I'm trying to defend, I'm defending the status quo as it exists in Lenny's mind, which is that reading is, is still a major part of, of his life and a major part of the, the life uh, of his peers. Uh, Michael and I went to Oberlin, and I remember, you know, staying up late at night talking about books as if nothing else mattered more than books, you know. And I know that that, that kind of stuff still exists. This book is unabashedly a defense of that lifestyle, uh, knowing it all at the same time that it's, uh, that it's, it's a lost cause in some ways, not in all ways. Uh, is it a defense of American power? Interesting. Um, the book is a love story, and it's a sad love story. And the love is for two things. One is Lenny's love for Eunice. And also Eunice is, who begins to reciprocate some of Lenny's love as the story goes on. The other thing is a love, the other love story is a love for America, which personally I've developed pretty late in life. Uh, I came as an immigrant. It was not a happy assimilation. You know, I came here in the 80s. There were all those anti, you know, the evil empire, all those movies, Red Dawn, Red Hamster, Red Gerbil, you know. And there's a, so I always felt very much like an outsider here. But as I've grown older and balder, I decided uh, that, you know, the, and as I've traveled across the world, uh, the love I have for America is not in the kind of uh, nativist strain. Uh, this is a very problematic country, always has been, always will be. But uh, it's, it's, it's a country that I feel also is endangered in some ways, at least the idea of America as the dominant power in the world. Uh, and it's very scary for me, and I think what this book is sort of, touching upon is the idea that Americans may not be used to, and uh, not, not talk about this audience, but Americans in general, may not be used to the idea that this country will not be the dominant power that it's been for so long. It, it, goes, it cuts against the grain of well, who we believe we are. I was born in a failed empire, the Soviet Union, which also very much ha had this, and even after the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia became basically a poor 
third world country, uh, the, the people still needed to believe in themselves as being part of, there's almost a kind of messianic belief in the overreaching Soviet, uh, Russian power or, or the, almost the Eastern Orthodox mythology of Russia as a great power. And that exists, I think, to some extent in this country as well. Not, I, I, let me take out to some extent. Uh, it exists uh, in this country as well. Uh, and this story, in this story, America begins to fall apart and really does fall apart. And, but no great super, I mean, China's on the rise, but I'm not particularly looking forward, right, as things stand right now, to, to China being the, 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 the major power in the world. So the book is kind of almost a eulogy for, for America with all its faults as it once was. And I guess in, in, in both those ways, it, 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 I think you're, you're right in, in your assessment of the novel. Any more questions or complaints? <laughs> Concerns? Sure. Oh, please. Hi. Um, I haven't read this book yet, but I did oh, read no. Absurdistan. And um, it struck me in your reading, um, having grown up as a Jew on the East Coast of the United States, um, and many in the audience will probably agree, we have a very strong stereotype of the Jewish mother in our literature here, but not so much the Jewish father. And so I was wondering, I noticed that there is a strong Jewish father component in at least those two books. And I'm not sure if it's, if it's Jewish father, Russian father, Russian Jewish father. I just wonder if you could say more about Jewish fathers. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Roth took care of Jewish mothers forever. Uh, <laughs> thank you. One less thing to worry about. Uh, but Jewish fathers, you know, but when I read about Jewish fathers, they're all, uh, they were all from uh, poor Soviet families. Um, so they're a little different from the kind of Jewish father that's, uh, you know, that's this typical East Coast Jewish father in America. Um, they've been through, you know, Hitler and Stalin and the whole nine yards. So there's a lot, there's a trace of violence and sadism and very awful humor. And, and you know, what's that great Russian saying? He who does not hate does not love. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're very different, I think. And, and I, I, it's, it's far for me to, I, I've never had a character who's purely Jewish American. They've always been seen through the prism of, of the Soviet, post-Soviet experience. So um, I, I think growing up uh, in, a, in, in a society like Russia, like the Soviet Union, where, you know, might really makes rights, where, where powerful people stand out, and where being a male is something very different from being a male in, you know, at Oberlin, where I went to college. <laughs> I'm actually transgendered, too. So, uh, <laughs> But when I was a woman at Oberlin, it was very different, you know. So, uh, we... Coming from my background, it was really unexpected, <laughs> the Russian male background. So um, I think I'm really chiseling away, you know, like, and going back to Roth, Roth chisels away at a very particular p portion of society. Newark in New Jersey is his, little, is his little neck of the woods. And for me, Russian Americans from Leningrad growing up in the East Coast, that's my little, that's my little uh, preserve, my menagerie. Hi. Um, I had a two-part question. I understand with the satire, a lot of times there's kind of exaggeration of certain things that we see within a culture, hopefully in the case of your book. So what I wanted to ask you is, um, one, what trends do you see currently in the culture that you think could potentially lead us um, to some of the outcomes that we see in your book? And then secondly, hopefully optimistically, what trends do you see in our culture in the other direction that <laughs> perhaps we can reverse some of what we're starting to oh see. Oh, boy. <laughs> Soviet Ashkenazi Jew asked for optimistic uh, <laughs> response. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I hope no one's going home. We're going to take some time here. <laughs> Let's talk about the pessimism first. Um, 
when people stop reading long-form texts, something happens. And America, as I know, I teach at an MFA, Master of Fine Arts program. I'm shocked by how every, you know, we can't, we have enough applicants, you know, there's like 10,000 applicants for every seat. Everybody wants to write. Nobody wants to read. Everybody wants to write. What worries me about America is we're a culture of number one specialness all around. We each think we're incredibly special and the best. You know, um, we, Our math scores and science scores may be abysmal, but that's not going to stop us from thinking we're just great because we're Americans. Um, people want to be uh, – the reader is almost an extinct animal uh, as opposed to the writer. The write, writing, writers are flourishing because when you're a writer, it's almost like when you're in the video game. You get to be the hero or the heroine. You're the one that's, that's the avatar going through the landscape, shooting, killing, doing whatever you need. Reading requires something different, reading long-form text as opposed to little. It requires a kind of – both a and a kind of interaction. It requires you to actually let yourself flow into the mind of another human being. It requires a kind of compassion and an empathy that I think is important not just for readership, for readership but actually for a nicely functioning democratic society. And that's something we lose. I mean, obviously, when you watch a, a, a movie or any kind of uh, video thing, you're also entering into the mind of its creators, the actors, everyone who's involved. But there's no direct route, as, as happens with fiction. You know, For better or for worse, if you read my three books, you've sort of lived with me for a while probably for the worst, but you've done it, you know. Congratulations, you know, and that's something that's very unusual. And maybe you've developed an empathy for something that I care about. And hope, and I know that I've developed empathy for a lot of the, you know, like, for example, one of my favorite writers, Edwidge Danticat. When I read about her, uh, you know, her tales of Haiti, I understand so much more than I would from just seeing footage of Haiti. Or it, 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 So if long-form text dies as an art, as an art form and as, as, as something that people do in their spare time as a form of entertainment as well, something terrible will die as well. Um, what are the positive trends? I, I've been on this tour for about a month. Everywhere I go, hundreds of people come out um, to listen. Um, the independent bookstores that I've seen, almost all of them are thriving. Uh, people are fighting back. Um, the most important thing that happens in terms of my own personal life story is uh, I've become heroin addicted to the iPhone. Uh, Thank you, American Telegraph and Telephone. Your phone doesn't work in most parts of the world. Uh, I go upstate, there is absolutely no coverage. And finally, I'm able to put this device away because it won't work and to read books and to write and to think and to be a real analog human being, you know, because scientists estimate each year with the iPhone, I lose about 6% of my humanity. <laughs> so by 2018, I'll be, you know, I'll be more app than man. As a professor of uh, college students, I want to thank you for this book. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I agree, yes. <laughs> thank you. Very good. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. I I'll sign any books you have. Yeah.